Welcome to Tame Pain, where we are guiding the path to your goals. Pain is a top reason individuals seek healthcare, and our mission is to empower those dealing with chronic pain through education and guidance to engage in their life again. So, whether you are dealing with chronic aches and pains and looking for advice, or a healthcare clinician looking for guidance to help others, we are here to help. This episode was recorded for Cal U's Journal Club, shared with permission. If you've not yet checked out Cal U and are a new clinician or healthcare student, we highly recommend going to their website, www.calusummit.com. Cal U is a meeting place for individuals looking to improve their understanding of complex topics like pain while gaining insight to integrate research into practice. All right, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Journal Club. Excited for this paper personally because I feel like Michael Ray, anytime we end up reconvening and having a discussion around different papers, it always ends up being a great one. And this one happens to be one he authored. So some quick just things for Journal Club. For those of you, this is your first time. A couple of different ways you can engage. You can totally just lurk and chill with screen off and just take in the, the brain gains and let it serve as some reflection prompts. But the more engagement, the better. So please feel free to get popping in the chat. Any questions, comments, trolling, it's all welcomed. If you are around, definitely turn on the camera. Again, just make sure you're on mute because we do record this and upload it for the Kalu community to work through. Megan just shared the paper link. Hopefully some of you had a chance to go through it. But yeah, if you have a question, you can use the raise the hand function on Zoom or you can just unmute and ask. But the more engagement, the better because this is just a really good paper for discussion. So what we're talking about today is an exploration of low back pain beliefs in a Northern America-based general population. And we have the lead author with us, Michael Ray. For those of you that are not familiar, Mike has been a massive influence on this collective community for a long time. He's someone that is pretty hell-bent on making a positive impact on the profession and the industry, which I really admire. And now in his new role at Bridgewater, as a professor now and doing things like getting a paper out as soon as he did is pretty incredible to be able to make an impact in a positive way. So I'm really excited to have him here and, and grateful for him to give us some of his time. So Mike, if you wouldn't mind just giving a quick kind of spark notes on you, where you're at, and then we'll kind of dive into it. Yeah, of course. And thank you guys for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this paper. Background of me, I'm traditionally a chiropractor. Like that's what my doctorate's in. And I have a master's in exercise science. So I'm chiropractor, health educator, and now pain researcher. So I teach at Bridgewater College here in Bridgewater, Virginia for their health and human sciences department. And I teach a wide variety of undergrad and grad classes from health and fitness assessments, sports nutrition, anatomy and physiology, health promotion, like just a wide variety of things, pretty much whatever they need me to do within reason and within my scope. And then my research predominantly focuses on the relationships between pain, physical activity, and beliefs for the most part. We'll probably do interventions in the future, but we're, I was actually just talking to someone the other day about this. We're probably about five years away from interventional studies. Very cool. So before we get into this a little bit more, I guess, what was sort of the inspiration or push to get this paper done and, and why you wanted to look into it? Yeah. So we, I was trying to remember, I think I wrote the IRB for this in like 2019. It's interesting, like actually conducting research now 
uh, versus like reading research from the stance of like you get a better perspective of how slow things actually are. So it's like, yeah, you, you mean know, like I just printed this out and it took me 30 minutes to read it. And you're like, bro, it literally took me three years to make this happen. Right, <laughs> you <asshole. right>. like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it doesn't like, it's just interesting being on this side of things. Cause you're just like, yeah, that was a huge chunk of my life. But <laughs> <laughs> we did that and we started recruitment and it took a while. We, in essence, I've been fortunate to work with, awesome people that I also look up to and admire, like Peter Stilwell and Sabrina Connix. And so when I was looking at, you know, where are the gaps in our knowledge, especially the United States, but also just Northern America, which is defined as United States and Canada, what I noticed is there's not a lot of information out there similar to what we've seen in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, even China on low back pain beliefs and really pain beliefs in general. I just chose low back because obviously the, the prevalence and the burden and impact of it. So we didn't have a whole lot of knowledge that specifically qualitative data. So we have a couple of quantitative studies out there by like Stephen George, who's a dude looking at back pain beliefs, but we didn't really have any qualitative data. And so I was really influenced and inspired by kind of major players in the game, so to speak, like Ben Darlow and Jenny Setchell who had done qualitative studies on back pain beliefs and were quite impactful on me, which ultimately were kind of the, I remember emailing with them, kind of telling them like, hey, you were pretty much some of the driving forces that made me go into academia to teach and do research. But we didn't have any of that data here in the United States. And so I was like, well, you know, let's try to go get this. So we, we kind of set out to do that and, you know, ultimately ended up getting it published after a few revisions. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And thank you again, because I know that it's probably a crazy amount of effort that goes into that, but excited to be able to share this with our community and have you here to talk about it. So I think before we get into talking a little bit more about the paper, kind of want to get some feedback from you all. So in the chat right now, how many of you put a one in the chat if you are currently in school, if you're in either DPT school If you're driving, you do not have to participate in this. (laughs) But if you are currently in DPT school or Cairo school or any allied health, put a one in the chat right now if you're currently in an academic institution. So as as everyone else, put a two if you're a clinician, if you're currently practicing. So what I want to know from everyone, and I assume that everyone mostly, all right, clinicians on deck. Hopefully you read this paper because it wasn't too, too long. But I'm curious to learn from all of you. Like, we'll just go with a simple one and two scale. So one in the chat, if you felt like your education around low back pain, but really like kind of your ortho material in school was very kind of biomedically focused, kind of as discussed in the paper. Like if you felt like you're like what talks about in this paper, if you felt like it was really biomedically focused or a two, if you felt like they really did do a good job of exposing truly more of the BPS side of things, so to speak. I have like for me, like very big one, but I graduated back in 2015. So it's been a long time, but I know this aspect of the paper really resonated with me. And then I guess the other question that I wanted to ask, yeah, classic, like you got one lecture of it to check the box, but then yeah, Yeah. (laughs) check the box. We did it. All right, cool. So I guess what I really wanted to know on a scale of zero to 10, zero being like no confidence whatsoever, 10 being like, I literally am so finessing and good with addressing these difficult conversations. Because I think this is one of going to be one of the talking points I'm really trying to have is like, how do we address some of the uncertainty around some of this stuff and the unknowns? Yeah. 
zero, no confidence, 10, most confidence, having these conversations with folks in clinic experiencing low back pain? Like, What would you self-rate your confidence navigating some of these conversations? Drop it in the yeah, chat, the, zero, oh, zero okay. to 10. What's up, Mike? I was, I was like, are you asking me or the... <laughs> no, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm asking everyone. Oh, okay. Nice, Andrew. It's legit. The 5.345. All right, cool. So I think like, like this was such a good paper to help bring to light more of kind of like you've said, like some of what's already been sort of um, seen in some of the Australia population or China population, but now bringing it close to home to North America and seeing that. But I think that at the meat and potatoes of it is like, how can we learn from this and, and what, how does this kind of move things forward? And I feel like that's one aspect of it. But I think, Mike, what would be helpful if we could just do a spark notes, oh, yeah. kind of just wanted to go like just quickly over some of the like design of the study in terms of like how much of a pain was it getting the sampling size, mm. maybe speaking to some of the bias around that in a sense of like how you were able to diversify some of the population that you were getting in or not. I would love to hear about that. And then we can kind of talk about just like the coding aspect and creating the categories and stuff like that. Yeah, so we did this as a cross-sectional survey, so just a you know snapshot in time. It took people about fifteen minutes. We were concerned collectively of over-biasing our sample. There's some issues with doing online survey sampling; it's just not being representative, especially if you just use like your own audience. Um, and I don't have like a substantial following, but I would hope the people who do pay attention to the stuff I post about would kind of have updated beliefs on this topic. So I created a Facebook group, Twitter group, and Instagram page for research purposes. So I don't mind talking about it now, but I didn't talk about it while we were conducting the study, but it was Exploring Pain Research Group. And so we pushed the survey out through this research group with promotion for advertisements on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I want to say ultimately it cost us around $2,000 to reach sample size, which are things like you might not necessarily consider when you're when you're doing this type of research. We could have certainly tried organically, but it's just not, it would have taken much, much longer versus targeted paid ads. So we targeted the ads towards Northern America, so just regional locations, anyone over the age of 18, and that was pretty much it. Now, the nice thing about, we use SurveyMonkey. Um, the nice thing about using it is it can do inclusion and exclusion criteria for us. So we said, uh, inclusion was just English speaking located in those regions and over the age of 18 and didn't have other ongoing issues that would lead us to label someone to have a little bit more specific low back pain. So like rheumatic issues or post-surgical situations, stuff like that, they were excluded. So these were considered more along the lines of what folks label as non-specific low back pain these days. And then so once we recruited them, they met our inclusion criteria with the study was originally set up as mixed methodology. So we did the back pain attitude questionnaire, which Darlow actually came up with to contextualize this qualitative research. So we used that to get an assessment of people's back pain beliefs. And it asks all kinds of, it's a 40 item questionnaire and asks various things about like, do you think it's good to lift without bending your knees? Do you think sitting is bad for your back? Do you think that once you have back pain, you permanently have back pain, stuff like that. So it gives you an ability to rate those questions from very false to neutral to very true. And so you have a Likert scale. So it's easy like modeling to do with that type of quantitative questionnaire. 
but you miss something with quantitative questionnaires. Like I get a little bit of insight, but I don't get your explicit beliefs, right? So I don't, I can't hear your voice and how you conceptualize low back pain. So what we did is we asked follow-up questions, open-ended qualitative questions. So the first question is, what do you believe to be the cause of your low back pain? The second question was, if your low back pain has been on and off, persistent or recurrent, why do you believe that's happening? And then the third question was, where did you get your beliefs from? And we gave a couple of examples, which is funny because we actually got critiqued pretty hard by one of the uh, reviewers for, for giving examples. So that's another conversation. Yeah, always reviewer too. So we, we asked those three questions and they had free text. They could write to us as much as they want. Some people wrote like one or two sentences. Some people wrote entire paragraphs. I tend to prefer having more detail than not. And so then once we started getting responses in, it's different with qualitative research. So like the quantitative side, I did a sample size calculation and figured out how many people do we need to meet, you know, power to have representative sample for Northern America for the BPAC. But you can't, you can't do that with qualitative research because there's no reference. So we did what's called an inductive analysis for the qualitative side of things. So the open-ended questions people responded to, we start coding them. And so because it's inductive, we go into it without any preconceptions, really, of like, what are we going to find? It's not like where you're doing a test for an intervention or something, and you have a hypothesis, like a null that you're trying to falsify. With qualitative research that's inductive-based, you're just going into it open-minded, and you're like, wherever the data takes me, that's where I go. And so you start looking at responses, and you start doing what's called coding. And so from, from this approach, it's ultimately called IPA, inductive phenomenological analysis you are labeling responses with one, two short sentences code. So let's say someone said the cause of their low back pain was disc herniation, which people actually did use that language. It was heavily rooted in kind of biomedical lexicon, as we found out. You would write spinal degenerative disc disease as your code, and you would try to keep consistent with that code for anything that would meet that criteria. Or if someone said, I lifted poorly, you could write biomechanics. Or I sit all day at work, you could write posture, something like that. And then as you go through these, you start sampling every 10 responses or 20 responses. It's kind of arbitrary, but you don't want to let it get too many responses without starting to code because you're, you're looking to be what's called kind of saturation. So when have I gotten to a point where I just keep seeing very similar responses over and over again, and I'm no longer seeing anything that's kind of pulling me into a divergent path. So you kind of meet saturation. So you have to continuously analyze the data throughout the process. And then once you've met saturation, you're kind of starting to form categories or some people will call them themes. And you're looking at, okay, I have, we ultimately had 62 responses. So question one, I saw these codes in the first 10, these codes in the second 10, so on and so forth. What are the major themes? What can I take and put under this umbrella? And so you start pulling under and creating categories. And those are kind of the bigger picture of like, it's almost when I was going through it, it's kind of like playing a card game, like Go Fish or something, right? Like you're just... It's here's my spades, here's simplify. my hearts, here's my right. <laughs> I, I try to simplify things. I'm like, what's the easiest way I could think about this or conceptualize it? So yeah, it's just, it's just a matching game at that point. And so then you look at that and you say, okay, here are our major categories that emerge from this. What does this mean? Like, what do we do with this information? Right. And so it really gives us a window into how people think about their low back pain, conceptualize the experience, and then the sources in which they predominantly believe to be what greatly influenced 
their beliefs. Now, beliefs are kind of murky. They're not this like tangible entity that exists. And we kind of ebb and flow for all different reasons about how we form and keep and shape our beliefs. But for the most part, I'm comfortable in saying like, this was the totality of beliefs for our sample. And these are the sources in which they think that they form these beliefs from. I'll stop there in case there's like any questions or anything so far. Does anyone have any questions on more of the kind of the back end stuff? I know it's not as sexy, but I think it's good to get an appreciation. And for those of you in here that might be interested in going into some research at some point, I think it's good to get an idea of it. So I have a few prompts, but before some of these prompts, I kind of just wanted to see if there are any brave souls that would be brave enough to kind of share. I'm really curious to learn from our community, like what's like the thing that stood out to you the most, like reading this paper. Like, what was your biggest takeaway or what was the thing that really stood out the most to you? I'd, I'd be curious to hear from anyone willing to share. And there has to be someone. Yes, Andrew, let's go. So I don't think it's very high yield necessarily. But one thing that stuck out to me was just the observation, like the individual that response I was giving, I was attributing the low back pain to psychological causes, gave longer descriptions of sort of their reasoning in their head and, and why it was occurring. And I was just wondering if that was like a theme that persisted and whether or not maybe the education or the familiarity with the subject that the individual was talking about, whether or not that contributed to like their total response, if that makes any sense. Yeah. When you say continued, continued for that individual or for the larger sample. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Across all of their responses, um, whether or not that was the case, like they, they gave a lot of information um, yeah, and so whether that, or not others didn't. That was very unique. Oh, thanks for the question, by the way. That was, that was very unique to that individual. And they were actually our only one that we could code and categorize under kind of like the psychologically informed perspective out of 62 people we had one, which is uh, depressing, to say, to say the least, the one person to recognize that influence. But all of their responses aligned similarly with the amount of depth and detail they went into. We had a few others that would do that, but it was much more under the biomedical umbrella or physical category, so to speak. It's interesting because I'm doing a clinician study now, but I wish people would be more than willing to give more detail than not. But that is one of the limitations of a survey-based study. We actually will likely do a follow-up to this study for this sample. Part of the, the questionnaire was, would you be willing to be interviewed by us at a later date? And so you were able to check yes to that, at which time we'll do Zoom calls with them and kind of explore these beliefs a little bit more. Cool. Any other people that want to share, have any takeaways from this? All right. Is it Ali or Ali? Ali. Ali. Okay. Yeah. 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 Thank you. And uh, Michael, this paper was great. And one of the things that kind of stood out to me and I was reflecting on was you eloquently described in kind of the discussion, but that there was kind of a a paradox on some people attributed their back pain to almost overexerting themselves or excessive physical activity. And then some people attributed it to underdosing, whether it be activity or sedentariness. I just thought that was interesting with, and you went into kind of chronic pain and the interventions for that and and how activity would be one of the more efficacious interventions for that. But how would we approach someone who would, who already kind of has the belief system of their back pain coming from 
overexerting themselves and what that really looks like? Yeah, that's a great question that I don't know I have a very tangible answer to, unfortunately, at this time. The activity paradox was very interesting to find. Um, Sabrina actually brought it to our attention and her and I were chatting about it. So as clinicians, like I think we want to be able to do something. And oftentimes, like the default response is like, oh, we exercise patients. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, provided what are the narratives are we giving people to get them to buy into wanting to do exercise. And I, I'm much more in the, we need to get people active camp versus exercise, which implies like regimented plan structured with a very specific outcome in mind. I don't think we need that for the vast majority of people in the current state that we're in. But there's certainly going to be people that come in and they're like, well, I do manual labor. I am constantly physically active. And you're like, well, yeah, I get it. Like clearly the correlate here is the amount of physical activity that you're doing, whether job related or otherwise. So just telling you to exercise or do more activity doesn't make a lot of sense. The constraints here, right, are, you know, do we have a person who's in an industry in which they have a supportive HR, where they have supportive management, where they have autonomy within the workplace, where they can go to coworkers or they can go to upper management and say, here's what I'm dealing with. How do we regulate my activity at work? Can I do something different to maintain production? Can I change positions? Can I change activity? And that's not always the case. And it's like, well, what do we do with that? And, you know, social determinants of health kind of enters the conversation where all of us just shrug and don't really know what to do with that. And so it's difficult. You know, I, in those scenarios, the clinical side of me would say, I try to empower people to use whatever autonomy they have to make informed decisions to change their activity dosage within reason. So even if it's at a, a workplace that's very manual labor based, can we have periods where they do a particular activity for a set time that they can tolerate and then transition to another activity? So I try to work within the constraints of the system and the individual that we're working with. The interesting side of things is we have another hopefully forthcoming manuscript that's under revision right now with ACSM's journal, the um, Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise Journal, where we did just a cross-sectional survey was done by the National Health Information Systems, NHIS, National Health Information Survey, with the CDC. So they do this every year since the 60s, and it's a general representative sample of Northern America, or North America population. And they go into people's houses, sit down with them, very, very lengthy survey. And they've done it year after year for decades, but 2020 was the first year they asked about, are you meeting physical activity recommendations? And they went through what are the recommendations from cardiospiratory resistance training. And then they also asked various questions about chronic pain. And the interesting thing is when you model this data, where you can model it, the way we did it is you model, are they meeting various aspects of physical activity with the outcome of pain? And then you can kind of reverse that modeling and say, well, how did pain influence meeting physical activity? And then you can also do a bunch of controls for predictors, like descriptive statistics for like sex and age and stuff like that. And what we found is, and again, this is all correlation because it's cross-sectional data, but it's kind of a foundation for future studies, is if you met physical activity guidelines, both sets, then you are at two times less odds of reporting an outcome of frequency of pain and intensity of pain. So you reported less pain over time for meeting physical activity guidelines. If you were experiencing pain at the time of the survey, 
as frequency went up and intensity went up of pain reporting, meeting guidelines went down in a stepwise fashion. And so what we can definitely say is like, well, clearly meeting physical activity appears to have some type of bi-directional relationship with pain. If you're experiencing pain, you're less likely to be active. If you're physically active, you're less likely to report chronic pain in this context. So it's like, well, what do we do with this? What does this mean to the clinician? Well, we should most likely be screening and assessing physical activity behaviors. And then the clinician's role will be, and ultimately the argument we also make in that, that manuscript as well, is identifying facilitators and barriers to engagement of activity. So if they're doing too much activity, how do we adjust dosage within reason? And if they're not meeting these guidelines, it's not go out and do it tomorrow, but how can we get you to make moves figuratively and literally towards meeting this? It's kind of a long-winded way to answer your question, but hopefully that gives an insight. That was great. Thank you so much. Hey, hey, Mike. I also have a quick question going off of kind of what you just said. Do you think um, in relation to meeting the physical guidelines and future occurrences of pain, do you think there's an age-related component to that? Because I'm just thinking in my own experiences, like for younger people at least, especially if you're like an athlete in college, I tend to see athletes get injured or develop pain a lot more, whereas some random person who's like 18, 19, not very athletic, I feel like, again, anecdotally, I don't see a lot of those people injured a lot, whereas when you're older, it's kind of the reverse, I feel like. Can you ask that in a slightly different way, potentially? So in relation to meeting the physical activity guidelines and developing future pain, do you think a person's age can play a role in that? In, I would in that say relationship? age, most likely, yes. Albeit, if we're sticking to general population, most kids aren't meeting physical activity guidelines either. And so that's certainly going to be an issue as well. In the context of athletics, I think it's kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's almost the way I would think about it, a U-shaped curve as far as influence of physical activity. So if they're getting on that other opposite end, then we're probably going to see an uptick as well. So I think that it would certainly be related to their physical activity level specific to their context of the individual and the population you're looking at. Where most athletes, if they're playing collegiately or up, say higher, professional, national, international, then they're greatly exceeding those guidelines most likely. And that's a whole other conversation in itself because it's like, well, okay, we have to understand that, especially when we enter into a conversation of like, I do this for a living as a professional athlete, health isn't necessarily our goal, right? Winning and profitability and all these other things are our goal. And we're willing to do things that sacrifice our health to get that outcome that we're looking for of winning and profitability and so on and so forth. So that's a little bit of a different conversation versus say with general population. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense with, with the U-shape. So. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So I think personally, like that conversation is super, that is something that I still struggle with clinically is folks that have occupational demands that are just like incredibly relevant to what's going on and very unmodifiable becomes a really challenging situation for clinicians. And I feel like I'm curious for those out there because I think Mike is spot on in terms of like really trying to be an advocate for them in terms of finding ways to modify in meaningful ways that move the needle in a net positive direction. And I also know the reality of, especially for like, you know, 
newer clinicians and, and just in general too, where sometimes you're like, oh my God, panic manual therapy because there's nothing else you feel like you can do for them. And I just want to say personally, like, I don't think you should feel shame for doing that because it's, it's really hard when, if you're in a clinic, that's like, well, you need to see them twice a week. And it's like, yo, they're literally doing so much activity. The last thing they need to be doing is coming in here twice a week to do more activity. And yep. I, and I, and I recognize that that's probably a reality for some of you. So I think finding that sweet spot, but even if you are utilizing manual therapy for pain relief, which is totally fine, like just making sure the North star is advocating for them, trying to listen and, and figure out how to navigate some of the barriers and constraints to manipulating that. So I kind of just wanted to share that, that little piece of it. And then, yeah, I think for me, cause like, obviously, I mean, like starting level up, like papers like this was like a big reason why. So, I mean, we've been, you know, reading this was not shocking by any means, but it still doesn't mean that there's not takeaways. And I think for me, one of the big things that actually stuck out to me the most was just, you know, obviously besides for a little bit more confirmation that there's still a lot, a big uphill battle of the norms of what people think about back pain and where they're learning it from and the education we're getting in schools. Like, it's crazy like that. It's still like we're really out here in 2022 and it's still like the overwhelming paradigm of yeah. both academia and society, which is fucking crazy. But the thing that really stuck out to me the most, I think, was like navigating the uncertainty of it, too, because seeing how like the unknown was another one of the biggest responses from people. And I thought that was kind yeah. of that's what sort of stuck out to me, because I think that's one of the things that I've struggled with the most clinically I'm continuing to try and refine my ability to navigate those situations in a way because the paper mentions like not knowing, you know, maybe for a small segment of the population is probably like, oh, they're like, oh, I don't really care. Like, whatever. Like, it is what you know what it is, what it is. But for some people, it can create a lot of anxiety. It can create a lot of these other negative physiological changes that can influence the pain experience in a negative way. So how can we quell some of those by our reassurance and our confidence and our explanations of what's going on while still being guideline concordant and not overly bullshitting and overly simplified answer that we think the patient wants to hear? For me, that's still one of the all-time struggles. And so I don't know if that resonates with anyone, but I felt like when I was thinking about if there's one thing we can all leave with today is maybe like a conversation around navigating some of the uncertainty around this and like, how can we go about doing that in a responsible and empowering way? And, and even just for the folks that do have really rooted biomedical, biomechanical, biological beliefs around their low back pain as the center, right? Because it's not saying that this can't be relevant, but it's more that that is the, the center of it all. Like, how do we navigate those conversations? So I'm just going to open it up there. I don't know if that resonates with anyone or if anyone else has kind of experienced that struggle, but it's still hard. Yeah. And I was just going to say too, Zach, to rewind just a little bit, if you don't mind, um, on the system level constraints. Like, I don't think there's a lot of novelty in this study, unfortunately. I wish I could have sampled this and been like, wow, we were, you know, really doing well in Northern America. But if we want system level change, it's easy to say like, hey, we should do this. And here's what we saw in these other regional locations. But ultimately, if you're wanting to see policy change, you really have to have a foundation to advocate for it. You can't just go to people who are, are in power, so to speak, and be like, hey, look at this, this study in this location. I think we should make the changes here based on this. You need to have regionally based information 
to inform policymaking. And so that's kind of the goal with this study as well as the upcoming, the one we're currently doing for clinicians is like saying, like, hey, we have very solid foundational evidence to say that there's some systemic level issues in how we approach people in pain and specifically not just chronic pain, but also how are we treating and managing and triaging acute pain cases because all chronic pain cases begin as acute pain cases. So we're having this kind of hopefully snowball effect where then we can go forth and advocate for paradigm shifts and say, you know, here's where we've been having these missteps. Here's a, a new paradigm shift that we're hoping to do. Then you go to interventional studies then you get grant funding and all of these things that are quite boring, but necessary kind of box you have to, to check. I probably in the position now to sympathize more with clinicians as far as the interventional choices than I have ever been because I'm more and more recognizing the systemic constraints that are on folks in clinical practice as far as like, hey, you're not going to get reimbursed a lot of times by sitting down and having a conversation with someone. And those folks that you're mentioning about, you know, already being at high activity levels, high stress levels, little autonomy in the workplace, they probably need to have a sit down conversation and have someone listen to them and validate their experience and try to find things that they could do that are within their control. But that's really hard to get reimbursed for. So it's like, well, how do we make the argument that we should be reimbursing for that, right? And so that's ultimately what we're trying to to create. Yeah. And so, and I think that's like, things like this are amazing because change comes from all the different ways. And obviously policy change is going to have the biggest, yeah. arguably the biggest magnitude of effect. But, you know, for us here in, in sort of the grassroots movement is like, what's in our control as like yeah. the local clinician in your community totally. or virtually on social media? Like, because at the end of the day, like this study also validated that the, you know, by far the largest resource from where people are learning about this is from healthcare providers. So, you know, you, Mike, that's always stuck with me in terms of like, whenever I do any lectures on pain or really anything, I'm like, what's your philosophy of this? Like, because whether you know it or not, you have some sort of base understanding of low back pain or biomechanics and its influence with pain. And your understanding is directly going to influence your beliefs and what you tell your clients. And it's so it's like, if we can be more responsible and take ownership for that, we can do at yeah. least do our part in not only sp- limiting the spread of misinformation, but also creating more community evangelists and people that are embracing of kind of this paradigm shift and, and just more of the nuance of it, which is a big challenge. 100%. We need both bottom-up and top-down change. Like that's the only way we're going to effectively kind of put the scales, so to speak, into a different direction, hopefully a, a better direction. <laughs> hopefully. Andrew, you had your hand up for a question or a comment. Yeah, Zach, when you mentioned that you had particular troubles in discussing the unknown aspects of like low back pain, like the thought just popped in my head, like at least if an individual describes their low back pain with biomedical language and attributes that as like the root cause, at least there you have a starting point. Whereas if they say, like, I, I don't know, or they can't help you establish what is going on within their head, it becomes a lot more murky. Yeah, that's fair. I think that leads to one of the things that I really appreciate in this paper, which talks about some of the consequences of things like that, which are like the expectations 
which is where, you know, we talk a lot about over medicalization or over treatment and it's just tough where, I mean, for sure. And, and ultimately any starting point is good and people's beliefs are what they are. So we shouldn't be judging them or shaming them for having that. It's more so just when it's so rooted in that structural approach, then it's almost like, well, my expectations are, how do I get out of pain if X doesn't get fixed? Or, you know what I mean? Which I've literally had those conversations where I had this like, this badass 80 year old man who like, it was like, yeah, I know I have a bulging disc. I have raging nerve pain down my leg. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you probably could. He's like, I'm not even that scared of it, but it's like, you're telling me that I can improve without that getting fixed. Like I'm calling bullshit. Like yeah. there's no way. And I'm like, I mean, I can't say with a hundred percent certainty, but like, yeah, there's a lot of evidence to tell us that you can make a pretty much full recovery without having to necessarily get it fixed per se. And I think that's just a really challenging belief for a lot of people to overcome a lot of patients to overcome. Yeah, I, th- I think where most of the data is pointing these days is people want a label. They, they want an answer. They want to know, why am I in pain? And I think where the clinician role falls is epistemic responsibility on, well, how am I going to answer that question while exuding certainty, but not to the point of giving a specific tissue issue that then evokes this idea and expectation of a specific tissue intervention, which is a very difficult, almost like walking a tightrope game to play and and is not easy and there isn't a perfect approach to it and every individual is going to bring their own background their own expectations their own influences for beliefs that you're going to have to work with and try to have difficult conversations with but i i think the majority of people do want some explanation this is what we see with a correlate for chronic pain development and sustainment is that holy grail search right of trying to find, if I can just find that right diagnosis, no one's been able to do it, then I can find a specific problem that's wrong with me and we can fix it. And so it's constantly looking, looking at pain as this, this pathology, this abnormality, which could lead us down a whole other discussion of health mm-hmm. and disease and nosology. But ultimately, where I try to position this conversation is I try to take the point of reassurance from the stance of, hey, look, we, we've looked at the symptoms you're presenting with, and none of them are signs for this, 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 and this. And that's a really, really good place to be in because I'm able to order imaging. I would frame that under, I'm not really concerned enough to want to even order imaging because if I am asking for imaging, then odds are you can't work with me any longer because I need to most likely make a referral depending on what I find in the imaging. It's going to change my recommendations pretty drastically. We're not in that situation. That's a good spot to be in. How do we move forward? From here. Now, the difficult part of this discussion, I've started working with some other physicians in various specialties. So, uh, two come to mind that are ER physicians. And I've been talking to them, and they're like, Yeah, we have choosing wisely guideline posters all over the hospital. Like, it's been beaten in our head to not inappropriately order imaging. And then I go into the room, I have five minutes with them, and that patient is completely bought into the idea that. They have to have imaging to find a specific issue. So I just do it. And the other argument is because I'm graded on patient satisfaction, not my outcome. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. And so it's, it, it's not so simple of like, here's the guidelines, here's the information, go implement it. There's, there's so many layers of things that have to be addressed and changed. So then it's like, well, what could we do to empower you as a clinician practicing 
to feel capable of having conversations and push back a little bit against these misinformed beliefs within reason and then not have to worry about they weren't as satisfied with my care. It's kind of the consumerism of healthcare, unfortunately, is where we're at. Yeah, that's fair. And I'll share one piece too, because it, it is definitely hard. And I think like for I think about my own kind of growth as a clinician where new grad Zach was very much like very objective centric, where like subjective was kind of like, oh yeah, let's get through that so I can find the problems wrong with you. And that was, that was really nice to fall back on. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, you have an anterior pelvic tilt and your transversus abdominis isn't firing. This is why you have back pain. Like it's pretty right. simple where obviously we know there's a lot of flaws in that reasoning and I was nociboing the world, but no better do better. I think you never get it right. And yeah. there's no perfect way. I think one strategy that I try to employ besides for what Mike said, which is really brilliant, which is like, how can we rule out the big scaries and provide that reassurance? That's great. But like you said, patients want, they want clarity and certainty still around what's going on. They're like, okay, cool. I know nothing scary is going on, but I still need to know what's going on. You're like, okay, okay. So one thing that I definitely, my bias or my approach is like really taking the time to have a thorough history and, and listening and trying to make sense of all of their activities and life loads and the whole psychosocial backdrop. So I can try and make sense of maybe seeing some sort of trends and like, was there just a long, long time of an incredibly sedentary lifestyle, not meeting any physical activity guidelines at all, where I'm saying, Hey, I don't think this is like everything, but this seems to be a big piece that is really modifiable and can probably have a big influence on it. And there might be some tissues around there that could be irritated. Low back pain is very complex, but it has a really good prognosis if we're able to get moving. And so that might be one way it looks or, you know, with a more active population and looking at what they're doing. And I, so I guess my, my point of what I'm trying to say is like, I like to look way more towards their past and what they've been doing and seeing if I can, like, if there's nothing there, I'll tell them, I'll be like, look, like, I honestly don't, I might not have a clear answer for you, but we still have a plan forward and that's what's most important. But if I am able to find any sort of, you know, relatively, significant trend in like too much too soon, too little for too long, that type, again, kind of back to that sweet spot of dosage. That's yeah. generally what I'll try to make my case around to help move things forward so that I don't feel like I need to pin it on this a specific structure while still validating yeah. the fact that there very well could be some tissue aspects of what's going on, but we just, our certainty and confidence with that can't be through the roof. And it's, a hard conversation to have, but those are just some, yeah. some things from my experience that I utilize. Yeah. I think validating really, if not one of the more or most important aspects of consultation is validating their experience. And I, I try my best to not talk about things from a dualistic stance of tissue issues versus psychosomatic versus psychological type discussions which is a weird approach to BPS, which ultimately, as I'm sure most people on this call are familiar with, just trichotomizes it unnecessarily. Because uh, it's always a tissue issue, right? To, to use a, a generality, which I'm not a fan of, but if you're talking to a human who's experiencing pain, then it's a tissue issue because they're embodied human beings. They have a body, therefore they're experiencing pain in a body location. You can't really say this isn't a tissue issue. The question becomes, 
is it a sufficient tissue issue to alter our recommendations for management? But the reason I make this specific point is because the alternative of what typically happens is people start saying, what's well, all in my head? How do I think away pain? It's like, well, that's also not really that possible. Like yeah. certainly your belief system, your behavioral responses, your attentional focus, all of these things are going to influence your experience, but you're not going to just be like, I'm not in pain. I'm not in pain. And suddenly you don't experience it. So I try to get people to realize like, yeah, you have pain in your back. Are tissues related? Of course, but not sufficiently to alter our recommendation. Fair deal. I dig it. Corey, did you have a question you wanted to ask or comment? Yeah, I just had a comment kind of related to what you guys were both talking about just now. And one of the things that kind of I remembered and kind of stuck out to me from the paper is this in the intro that up to 90% of low back pain lacks a clear under underlying pathology. So like, you know, 90% of cases are just non-specific and you know, we don't really know what, you know, what the um, exact, I guess, mechanism or cause is. And so it just makes me think, I'm just kind of thinking through that, like, in terms of like being confident in the unknown with a patient, like when communicating with the patient, like letting them know that like, well, we can confidently say that we don't know a specific <laughs> cause. I am um, confident. I'm confident that I'm I confident in not knowing. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like if you patients, if patients hear you like kind of timid saying like, well, yeah, I honestly don't know. They're they're gonna think that like, okay, I'm gonna find right. a new therapist. But um yeah. I feel like that allows us to almost have confidence in the unknown. And then it kind of is a gateway to asking about like their lifestyle factors and that like low back pain, you know, is highly like individualized and like may result on like your unique kind of like lifestyle factors and then kind of leading that conversation like stemming off of that no that's a that's a great point i think you're referencing the coas 2006 citation for 90 percent doesn't have a specific issue the way i try to talk about it with folks is more of multifactorial versus saying non-specific because i do agree with you i think when someone says non-specific, they're like, well, you just don't know. So maybe I need to go find a better trained physician or physical therapist or chiropractor that can find my issue. And, and they're not going to be in short supply, right? Like the way our healthcare system is ran and operate, especially from a consumer-based healthcare system, is plenty of people claim to have the answer and the cure, which is also part of the reason we're seeing, in my opinion, my bias is part of the reason why we're seeing persistent recurrent pain development and sustainment in our population is because so many people are quick to, to claim they have the answer to pain. And so, yeah, I would, I would talk about it from multifactorial nature. So someone may say to me, like, well, I think I strained a muscle in my back. I'm like, yeah, it's completely reasonable and possible. I actually have no way of rolling that in or out. It's not like a hamstring strain where you went to run and you felt a pop and I look at the back of your leg and there's ecchymosis, there's reduced range of motion. Like, we don't usually have that with low back pain unless someone's like blunt force trauma, right? It's like, so it's like, yeah, you're, you're right. Like it certainly could be. It, it kind of gets into, not to be too tangential, but it gets into that whole debate of is pain related to nociception or not. And like clinically, you can't actually roll that in or out. There's no way to assess that clinically. So it's like certainly you could have strained a muscle. You could have sprained a ligament. You could have, you could have a disc herniation. The difference is, is that none of that is sufficient to alter our recommendations for management. Now, if you started experiencing loss of bowel bladder control, if you started experiencing new onset progressive neurological symptoms, like 
foot drop or paralysis, stuff like that, then we probably need to investigate this further. But barring those circumstances, we can figure out how to move forward figuratively and literally without over-focusing on some type of specific issue to fix. And the one other thing I'll just piggyback on that, Corey, because you just reminded me in terms of like kind of how the hell do we go about instilling confidence in the plan too, is I think like if you take a good sort of subjective portion of the exam and then you're also able to identify maybe some patterns of what's triggering their symptoms, that's a really Mm -hmm. nice way to be able to frame the conversation with confidence and being like, hey, look, like, sure, it could potentially be X, Y, or Z that you're thinking. But the biggest thing is we found like right now, super sensitive to bending forward, not inherently a bad movement at all, but maybe in the short term, we figure out ways to modify that and show you how to do it on your own. And you kind of build a plan around some of the patterns that they might be uh, sensitive to. And I think that's been something very helpful in navigating low back pain and, and taking the pressure off myself to feel like it needs to be ultra specific and more kind of just recognizing some of the different ways they're interacting in their environment and modifying accordingly. You can also, now this may backfire on you as it has on me, but I asked them, what do they think is going on? Now I've certainly had patients be like, well, why the hell are you asking me this? That's why I'm here. Like, what do you think is going on? You're the doctor. (laughs) But it's helpful to get their insight because that'll usually lead me down a path of, I saw this clinician who said it's this, I saw this clinician who said it's this. If you choose to, you can start navigating those waters with them. All right. So definitely some good conversation. If nothing else, it's always cathartic to be in this struggle together. So solid stuff there. I guess, Mike, the author of the paper, if you were to leave us with any parting words, I guess, what would, what would it be? What would they be? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say be more human from the stance of like, people are clearly experiencing low back pain and suffering. And it's easy and very enticing to be like, here's this one issue that's the problem that we can fix, whether it's movement-based, whether it's manual therapy-based. But I would encourage folks to try to have human open conversations with these people and listen to their stories and figure out what's the best way that I could guide them through this experience. Because the odds of improvement are really, really good. Like we know low back pain falls follows a good natural history trajectory, but we also know it appears clinicians can ruin natural history. So the kind of thought that should be in your head is how do I maximize and not ruin natural history? Well, I need to be able to navigate these waters and these experiences with this person where I do as little harm as possible, both with my language and my recommendations and the future behaviors I'm going to instill with them. Because what you're saying to them are going to be the building blocks for their future behavioral responses. They're going to adapt those beliefs to themselves, the way they view their body, the way they view the world around them, and their ability to act within that world. And so we want to be very cautious with our language. I remember Catherine Harmon talked about universal precautions as it relates to pain. And that's something I've tried to keep in my mind since I talked to her was, how do I say the most helpful things with the least amount of harm as possible as far as explaining pain and my recommendations for moving forward through this experience? And so that's what I would want people to keep in mind. Is you, but you, to go through that, you've got to listen to their story. You've got to talk to them and take that time, slow yourself down listen to what they're saying to you, and then figure out how do I give them confidence in their bodies and their abilities to go out into the world to pursue those valued life activities again. In spite of should pain come back, 
how do I instill their ability to self-manage in the future? Lots of really good things said in there. And I love that last piece too, especially coming from a more exercise centric bunch. The movement isn't necessarily about making them stronger and stronger equals less pain. But I think that piece of like helping cultivate authentic trust in their body is like, whew, chef's kiss. Yeah. And I think a really uh, good thing to work towards. So Mike, thank you so much for coming on and, and chatting with our crew. For those that came, thank you so much. Uh, if you're not following Mike on social media, just search Michael Ray. It's Professor Michael Ray with some underscores in there. But it'll populate if you, if you search yeah. Michael Ray, if you're not already following him. But he is such a wealth of knowledge, doing amazing work, especially now with pumping out research with some amazing people. So thank you, Mike, for coming on and, and talking. Yeah. And hope that some of you guys will toss him a follow. And you know, last up, I'll just say, because I was supposed to mention this at the beginning, I totally forgot because I'm the worst. But if you haven't, we are coming towards the end of, we got our summit. We have our virtual summit in September, the end of September 30th, August 1st, August 2nd. It's going to be epic. Mike actually kicked us off with our inaugural one, but we have some amazing topics, some incredible speakers. It's super engaging. It's lecture, but only like 30 minutes so we can have more breakout rooms and discussions. We have student rates still, and we have our early bird rate till the end of the month. So would appreciate any and all support. I can genuinely say that it's an amazing weekend of learning and we have all the replays. So it's all love either way, but really appreciate everyone coming out tonight because that's what makes this community awesome is people that just give a shit. So thank you all for caring. Mike, you're the man. Appreciate you. And uh, any questions, feel free to reach out to me. And I know feel free to reach out to Mike. I know he'd be happy to talk with any of you. Absolutely. Uh, thank you guys for having me. If you need anything, one of the things I forgot to say is I run a remote company called Tame Pain, but you can reach me at michael at tamepain.com. I may be a little delayed. The semester just started for me, but I will get back to you. Uh, if you need anything, I'm happy to at minimal be a sounding board. All right, everyone. Let's go change the world. See everyone soon. Thanks for listening to Tame Pain where we are guiding the path to your goals. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at tame underscore pain.